1: And enjoy the show.
2: To be unsettled. You have left behind your safe reality and fallen into darkness. There is no escape and there is no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. I am GM Danielson, your guide. ...through these twisted worlds of the most disturbed imaginations. We have assembled this convocation to undergo an expedition of haunting proportions... ...for we are summoning and being summoned. Prophetic perception taps into a realm that drips with malignant spirits... ...and death is everywhere... Our tales promise to besiege you with consternation. So beware of this episode's Entities and Visions. Our dark journey starts as we present to you the story of a priest who is newly confirmed and eager to prove himself to his congregation, the hierarchy, and the Almighty. When a harmless request from a parishioner puts the young father in audience with a supposedly reformed heretic seeking guidance from the church, the figure faces the priest with a decision he must prey upon. But will that decision put him and his faith in mortal danger? Jesse Cornett leads an all-star cast in Daniel Cornell's The Conversion.
1: I sprang out of bed as the alarm rang at the crack of dawn. I could hear the church bells ringing outside the rectory. It was time to celebrate morning mass at Our Lady of the Rosary Parish on a cold, rainy morning in Baltimore. It was November 2nd, All Souls Day, and I had a busy day ahead of me. After hustling over to the church, I put on my priestly vestments and proceeded to say mass without hitch. I always prayed the mass in Latin. My congregation was very traditional and cherished the Latin prayers. They were delighted to have a young pastor who loved Latin as much as them. I changed into my black cassock after mass and went into the front pew to say my morning prayers. Many priests in the modern age like to wear normal street attire when out in the secular world, but I always preferred wearing my ankle-length cassock. How would people know I was a priest if I didn't wear my cassock? It was my uniform. My prayer book. Rosary and large pectoral cross were always with me during morning prayer. I love praying in the pews of the church. Our Lady of the Rosary Parish was a large Baroque church, with uniform lighting from the many stained-glass windows surrounding the north and south walls of the church. The large-scale ceiling frescoes made it a truly awe-inspiring house of God. Many parishioners enjoyed staying after Mass to admire the marble statues and icons that ornamented the side altars of the church. Usually, people kept to themselves and did not bother anyone, and nobody dared to interrupt me during my morning prayers. On this particular morning, Mrs. Basso, a long-time parishioner, scooted into the pew next to me.
3: Happy All Souls Day, Father Stephen!
1: She shouted with a grin from ear to ear. Mrs. Basso always sported her giant red hat in church. She was not an aficionado of the Chapel veil vale, like many of our other parishioners, as it was too subtle for her personality. She was a boisterous Italian woman about fifty years old. She was a sweet lady, but lacked the self-awareness to filter her thoughts before speaking.
3: That was a wonderful sermon on purgatory. I hope I'm lucky enough to punch my ticket straight to heaven. Purgatory does not sound like a place I want to visit.
1: She continued. Mrs. Basso did not seem to notice or care that I was trying to concentrate on praying my rosary. Hello, Mrs. Basso. I calmly replied, while shifting my attention to the animated Italian woman. I'm glad you enjoyed the sermon today. All Souls Day is my favorite feast day. And we should always keep death, judgment, heaven, and hell in mind. That's all that matters in the end. Is there something I can help you with?
3: Well, I do have a small favor. You know my brother Bartholomew, right?
1: You mean your brother the Satanist. I could feel my palms getting sweaty. Mrs. Basso had mentioned her brother from time to time. This was the only thing I could remember about him. It was a detail that was hard to forget.
3: Former Satanist. My brother gave that stuff up a long time ago. He has had a major conversion, father.
1: Mrs. Basso stared at me with those piercing dark eyes. I detected that she was trying to get to the point. Well... That's wonderful news, Mrs. Basso, but what exactly is the favor you're asking of me?
3: My brother wants to enter seminary for the Diocese of Baltimore and needs a letter of recommendation. Nobody that I've talked to seems willing to provide a recommendation due to his... history.
1: She almost seemed ashamed and desperate. I knew as she was inferring. You mean you want me to provide a recommendation for him? I don't even know him. Plus, how do I know that this so-called conversion is authentic? I realized I had raised my voice to the level of Mrs. Basel. A few disgruntled parishioners praying nearby shot me an admonishing glare.
3: He wants to meet with you today. Since it is All Souls Day... Bartholomew told me he will be visiting the cemetery to spring a soul from purgatory. You could meet him there.
1: Mrs. Basso was referring to the ancient Catholic devotion of prayer for souls on All Souls Day. To release them from purgatory. The prayers were required to be performed in a cemetery. Good man. Glad to hear that he is willing to embrace this often neglected practice of the church. Maybe this conversation was real, I wondered. Could a satanic priest really have a dramatic change of heart? Conversion and repentance are cornerstones of the church's teachings, so I suppose anything is possible. Plus, who was I to judge? I would love to meet with him, Mrs. basso but I have a full schedule today.
3: Don't worry about that, Father. I spoke to my brother yesterday and he can meet with you this evening in the cemetery after your other appointments for the day. Would you mind, Father?
1: I hesitated one last time, with my hand on my chin. Okay, Mrs. Basso, tell your brother to meet me at the cemetery at 9 p.m. sharp. I'll be there.
3: Thank you, Father.
1: That night... I walked to the cemetery which was only a few blocks from the rectory. The street was foggy from the rain earlier in the day. There were only a few streetlights between the rectory and cemetery and most everyone in the neighborhood went to bed early. There was no illumination coming from the houses on the block. I don't know what creeped me out more, meeting a former satanic priest in a graveyard or walking alone in this murky, abandoned neighborhood. When I arrived at the cemetery, I observed a dark, shadowy figure about forty yards past the gate hovering over a tombstone. The lack of street lights surrounding the cemetery made it difficult to determine what the figure was, but I could spot two small embers of light near the figure. The embers looked like glowing red eyes staring at me. Could they speed Bartholomew? The person didn't seem to notice me as I slowly approached, but as I got closer, I realized that the glowing embers were lanterns. The person was holding one lantern and the other was resting on top of the tombstone lighting up the engravings. I didn't shout to get the person's attention. I did not want to disturb the neighborhood, so I kept moving in closer and closer. When I was ten paces away, I could decipher the outline of a man in a black suit and tie. I wasn't sure if he was wearing his Sunday best to impress me or to show respect for the person six feet under the tombstone he was near. He looked up at me with piercing dark eyes, much resembling his sister's. Mr. Basso? I cautiously inquired. A slight smirk emerged on his lips. Call me Bartholomew. Father Stephen, I presume? He responded with a thick Italian accent. Bartholomew was balding and wore a thick black beard with a touch of grey. He appeared to be in his mid-forties and was short in stature. That's right. I wasted no time by proceeding to recap my brief discussion with his sister that morning. Although I knew of Bartholomew's life as a satanic priest, I was intrigued to learn more. If he wanted to pursue the Catholic priesthood, he would have to be open and honest with me. I cut to the chase. Tell me about your former way of life, Bartholomew. What were you involved in, exactly? I need to know the state of your soul, and know that you have fully repented before I can even consider a recommendation to the priesthood. It's not every day that we have a former Satanist converting to the faith, let alone trying to become a priest. I didn't mince words. I had confidence that my forthrightness would not offend Bartholomew. If he was truly considering the priesthood, as Mrs. Basso said, he would need to accept the reality of his evil ways and repent. The grin on Bartholomew's lips faded into a look of remorse. He slowly paced back and forth with his hands behind his back. He opened up to me as I had hoped. I was baptized and raised in the
4: church from my youth. However, my rebellious teenage years propelled me in another direction. I was a party animal, a drunkard, a sinner. I always believed in God, despite it all. It wasn't that I became an atheist. Rather, I hated
1: God. I could have heard a pin drop at that moment. As he spilled out his life story to me, I could sense that the memories of hating God were painful. To relive, he let out a sigh and continued.
4: The church was constantly speaking out against spiritualism and occultism. To further my rebellion against the church, I dabbled in witchcraft and conjuring of spirits. I was eventually ordained a high priest in the church of Satan, and performed black masses.
1: What did that consist of? I intervened shakily. I wasn't sure if I wanted to know the answer. Various composite rituals, the rites of
4: Lucifer, Bell, Astaroth, and the whole cohort of Infernus. My altar was decorated with every symbol of occultism imaginable as an abomination to God. Decorating the altar
1: required me to gain certain items I could now feel the perspiration dripping off my nose and my heart was beating in my neck. What do you mean? What kinds of items and where did you acquire them? Bartholomew's look of remorse shifted noticeably into what appeared to be a smirk. I was now beginning to wonder if he was enjoying recounting the past.
4: Well, most of the items needed for these ceremonies were easy to obtain from religious stores. Crosses, chalices, and artwork. I would simply desecrate them through acts of-
1: Please! I get the point. I could only imagine what sort of reprehensible acts were performed on these blessed objects. I thought I could handle this story, but the details were starting to make me queasy. You can spare me those details. What other types of things did you acquire for black masses? Bartholomew opened his mouth to reply, but then hesitated. I inferred that he was trying to find the most delicate way to say it. Bones.
4: I needed bones. Not just any kind of
1: bones. Human skulls. I wasn't sure how to respond. A couple seconds passed by in silence, but it seemed like an eternity. He was waiting for me to make the next move. You mean you dug them up from graves? No. He replied in a
4: low whisper. Human sacrifice was a requirement to fulfill the Black Mass. Many pagan cultures engaged in human sacrifice. The Aztecs, for instance. This was no different.
1: Were the people sacrificed, fellow Satanists, who willingly offered themselves? I inquired. I was begging God for this to be the case. I was not in the mood to deal with the alternative.
4: No. If I could only turn back the hands of time, Father Stephen, if I could undo what was done.
1: I noticed a tear beginning to stream down his face, which froze on his cheek on this cold night.
4: You have to believe me, Father. I never wanted this to happen. That is why I insisted on meeting you in the cemetery at night. I didn't want anyone to overhear our conversation. I want to begin a brand new life. I want to become a Catholic priest and offer the holy sacrifice of priesthood to the one true God. Perhaps this will atone for the evil sacrifices that I offered to Lucifer.
1: I believed him. His sincerity seemed genuine. What is to stop me from telling this to the police? Consider this my confession, Father. I see. I pondered for a moment what to do next. I took a deep breath and continued. I will have to pray about this, Bartholomew. I can tell you have deep remorse for your former way of life. I don't have any doubt that your confession and conversion is sincere. However, the priesthood? The priesthood is a lifelong vow that the church takes seriously. You must realize that If I write a letter of recommendation for you, it will take six years of training in seminary, learning philosophy and theology. You understand what you're getting yourself into, don't you? Yes, Father.
4: I understand the commitment. I will pray
1: about it and let you know by tomorrow. At that moment, he reached into his pocket. "'and pulled out an object that looked like a cross. "'I want to give you something. "'Take it.' "'He placed the object in the palm of my hand "'and squeezed my fingers shut.
4: "'Regardless of your decision, "'I want you to have this as a gift. "'Please say you will accept it.'
1: "'I pulled my hand from his grip "'and opened my fingers to examine the object. "'It was a silver cross,' with red rubies and green sapphires, along the border. In an alternating pattern, I looked up at Bartholomew and smiled. Thank you. This was unnecessary.
4: No, I insist.
1: Before either of us could say another word, I heard a loud creaking noise. It sounded like a gate swinging open. I looked over Bartholomew's shoulder and spotted a dark shadow coming in through the gate on the opposite end of the cemetery from where I entered. He or she was briskly walking towards us without saying a word. Was I being trapped as another one of Bartholomew's sacrifices? Was this his accomplice coming to help subdue me? Was Bartholomew just buying time with his story until his friend could arrive? Surely not. I felt ashamed for thinking such a thing. The human mind tends to dream up the worst possible outcome when confronted with the unexpected. As the figure approached the light from the two lanterns, I realized it was his sister.
3: Hello, gentlemen. Did you two have a nice chat?
1: We did, sis, and you don't need to be a snoop about it. I was grateful that he responded before I could. Her blunt entrance gave me the impression that she was expecting a final resolution to Bartholomew's request for a letter of recommendation. Patience isn't a virtue that modern humans are endowed with. The three of us walked out of the graveyard together, and then Bartholomew and his sister parted in the opposite direction after a cordial farewell. I went back to the rectory and sank into my favorite armchair in my study. I glanced up and admired my vast collection of books on the wall. They were mostly liturgical books on how to pray mass. Traditional Catholics like myself have an affection for good liturgical worship. I put Bartholomew's cross on the end table, lit a pipe, and closed my eyes for exhaustion. It was almost 11pm at this point and I was very tired from a long day. I knew I should go to bed as I had another busy day ahead of me but my mind was racing from today's events. I promised Bartholomew I would pray about writing his letter of recommendation, I thought. Perhaps some scripture reading before prayer will inspire me in the right direction. I grabbed my Bible off the end table and cracked it open to a random page in the middle. I then closed my eyes and proceeded to point at a random verse to see if that would provide any wisdom. I knew this was not a scientific way to gain inspiration and was probably a superstitious approach to the scriptures. But I figured it couldn't be worse than Bartholomew's sins. I once again felt ashamed for such a thought. Who was I to judge? I opened my eyes and read the verse. As a dog that returneth to his vomit, so is the fool That repeateth his folly. Proverbs 26.11 I laughed and closed my Bible. Perhaps this was a sign that the priesthood was not such a good idea for Bartholomew. How could I be sure that he would not return to his former satanic ways? If he did return to occultism, he would have access to many blessed objects as a Catholic priest and could use them for acts of desecration. Could easy access to blessed objects be part of his motive? As the night drifted on, I felt myself falling in and out of sleep as I mulled over these horrible thoughts. My eyes slowly opened to the morning light squeaking in through the shades. I was lying flat on my back as I stretched and let out a big yawn. I didn't remember going to bed, My last memory was sitting in my study, pondering the ironic Bible verse that I pointed to. That's when the realization hit me, and I jumped out of bed in a panic. What is this? Where am I? This isn't my house, this isn't my room! My heart was beating a hundred miles per hour, and I was getting lightheaded. I was having a full-blown panic attack. I didn't recognize this room. The only thing I recognized was the silver cross, ornamented with red rubies and green sapphires on the pillow where my head was. What am I wearing? These aren't my pajamas. I saw a bathroom door open down the hall from where I was lying. I ran to it and looked straight into the mirror. Nothing Could have prepared me for what I saw next. Dark, piercing eyes stared back at me. I was staring into the face of Bartholomew Basso. Was I dreaming? I reached up and touched my face, expecting my finger to go through it like it was a phantom. My finger stopped as it bumped into the flesh of a cheek. This is real. I am not dreaming I then heard sirens outside my window It was a police car. Two officers stepped out and were heading for the front door One of the officers began pounding on the door with his nightstick.
5: stick thought of you, I, told you you're under arrest.
1: I walked to the door in a daze I was still light-headed and was not thinking clearly. I simply obeyed the officer's demand and opened the door. Bartholomew Basso, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will get down. There. Held against The you. officer handcuffed me and read me my rights. I was in the back of a police car before I could muster up anything to say to the officers. I was arrested for the murder of three people. Their decaying remains were found in the crawl space of Bartholomew's house. The bodies were recovered except for the skulls. Police said that a tape recorder was left at the police headquarters with a confession to the murders and information on the whereabouts of the three missing persons. The voice on the recorder was Bartholomew Basso's. The confession had been recorded the day before my arrest. An anonymous tipper called from a payphone the morning of my apprehension and said that the confession was secretly taped during a private conversation with Bartholomew. He had it all planned out. I went through months of psychiatric therapy. The many psychiatrists that I visited dismissed my absurd claim that I was Father Stephen of Our Lady of the Rosary Parish, trapped inside the body of Bartholomew Basso. The countless facts that I knew about Father Stephen did not impress them. A good stalker could come up with those facts. I was told by several people that Father Stephen still lived in the rectory at the parish and was doing well. Father Stephen did not heed my request for a visit at the psych ward. I was fit to stand trial. A few psychiatrists testified as expert witnesses and demonstrated to the jury that I had no true symptoms of schizophrenia or delusion. In their expert opinions, I was simply making up crazy stories to sound insane. the jury find the defendant guilty? On all charges. My insanity plea did not succeed. I was sentenced to death by electric chair. I never figured out how Bartholomew pulled it off. The only thing I did know was that the Silver Cross had something to do with it. While I waited on Death Row, I visited the prison library every day looking for the exact ritual that Bartholomew had performed. I never found it. The day finally arrived for my execution. They asked me what I wanted for my last meal. Anything but Italian, I replied. The warden visited my cell one hour before the execution, and asked if I wanted to see a priest for last rites. The warden knew I was a religious man. The guards told him that I prayed in my cell every night. The warden stepped aside and a man dressed in priestly robes with a large pectoral cross around his neck emerged from behind the door and came forward. The prison door was open and the priest asked for privacy. The warden and the guards left. The priest sat on a chair across from me and looked at my face. He had an expression of remorse when he entered my prison cell. But when the warden and guards departed... His lips slowly transformed into a familiar smirk. Only now it was on a different face. We talked in private for several minutes. Bartholomew remained firm in his conviction that he had truly converted from his satanic ways. That didn't change the fact that he had three bodies in his crawl space that needed to be dealt with. He no longer needed the letter of recommendation. He bypassed the six years required of seminary training and picked up on the liturgical ceremonies on the Catholic priesthood in no time. Perhaps the years he'd spent mocking the faith had trained him indirectly. My study at the rectory was also equipped with dozens of liturgical books to learn from. My conversation with the priest was abruptly interrupted. Dead man, walking! I heard a guard yell down the hallway. The hour had passed quickly. The prison cell opened, and the priest gave me a final blessing.
2: They say that the Lord works in mysterious ways, but it can sometimes seem unbelievable when bad things happen to good people. This may lead some to seek answers in other places. But old Scratch is cunning, and there is always someone who is corruptible among men. And he fills his ranks with those who seek the quick path, for they will be most easily dispatched. (laughs) When their usefulness has ended... After this brief message, we will continue our cavalcade of fear with a trip to enjoy a parade of terrifying proportions.
1: Hello listeners, Jesse Cornett here. I wanted to let you know how much we appreciate your patience with this second season and the delays that have ensued with the beginning episodes. And we are very aware of missed deadlines as we do our best to improve on the Simply Scary experience. We are progressing towards expanding our story productions with multicast, sound effects, ambience, and original scoring. We are also expanding our universe of material available to our patrons, so sign up as a patron to get even more Simply Scary with expanded episodes. We began this process in a minimalist form in the beginning season of our show, but now we've progressed into bringing you as many stories as we can with each episode, so we hope you will stick with us through this transition period. Just think of it as ongoing construction. As the sign reads, pardon our mess, as we are expanding. And now, back to the terror.
2: We have returned. Let us peel back new layers of foul demise. Peter has a recurring vision since moving to California to raise a family. His surrealistic experiences portend the coming of something wicked indeed. But it is the eventuality of his nightmare that will haunt him in ways he couldn't possibly imagine. Jason Hill performs Charlie Davenport's Everyone loves a parade.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs,
5: Peter lay still in the early morning hours, feeling the press of the coming 365 days and the chill of winter nipping around the edges of his covers. He remembered the advice one of Shelby's friends had given him when he first arrived in California. Two years, a gregarious fellow named Gabriel had said, as they sat on lawn chairs sipping away on Tecati and other beers Peter had never encountered before. Streamers hung overhead, and a decimated pinata dangled from the basketball hoop, battered from the assaults by Gabriel's children. Stretched out above it all was a store bought banner that proclaimed, Welcome back, Shell. Handwritten in black marker was the tag. And welcome, Pete. Peter felt that it was a nice addition. Yeah, two years for what? he asked. To simulate, Gabriel said, though in his current state speaking through equal parts tequila and negro Madeo, the words snuck past his lips sounding more like "simulate." You know, to feel like uh, SoCal is, uh, you know, home. <laughs> Peter still hadn't fallen into the rhythms of the place, He felt a little odd wearing shorts in October, and his New England accent still proved to be a source of amusement for far too many people. The cashier at the supermarket up the street had actually asked him to repeat words in his native dialect, Ka and Yad, before she would hand him his change. Peter suspected he would never quite assimilate, but there was nowhere else he'd consider home. Where Shelby was, wherever that might be, would always be where he belonged. Their first date back in DC had lasted eight hours, covering everything from her childhood in Northern California to her research at the university, and, most importantly, her very definite plans for what to do in case of a zombie apocalypse. In the weeks that followed that first date, Peter discovered that life was divided neatly into two periods of time. The time with Shelby, and the time away from her. Within a month, they were living together. And, when she announced a job opportunity had come up in California, Peter didn't debate relocating for even a moment. Less than a week later, he'd successfully gotten his request for a transfer to the California branch of Bellator Corp approved the speed unheard of in the firm's history. Now, sitting in bed, Peter looked out their window on Wrigley Lane. Ordinarily, the sky above his home was a uniform, featureless, pale blue. But after half a decade of drought, El Nino had come back and brought the first honest rain that Peter had known in this place. For a week, there were actual clouds above. They had been dark and full, too. Today, however, they held back at a respectable distance above the town. It was, after all, parade day. Peter watched Henry, their son, lying still on the tiny screen of his baby monitor. In the distance, he could barely hear the preparations for the festivities. Nothing definite, just the wind carrying the occasional bang of a drum or snippet of a voice broadcast over loudspeakers. He picked up the TV remote. The NBC affiliate was covering the parade. The perennial hosts sat in a booth above the route, their practiced smiles plastered tightly to their faces. Peter watched as the first float came into the camera's view. Posies, river reeds, and other arranged vegetation illustrated a collection of fanciful scenes that flowed from jungle to peaked castle. The floats' riders moved from scene to scene by way of slides placed between them. They cavorted with all manner of bizarre, multi-limbed creatures as fanciful aircraft and spaceships bounced overhead. The tradition of the parade had begun years ago, when people like him, transplants from the frigid east, decided to celebrate the warm paradise they now inhabited. It had been held every New Year's Day since 1890, save for those that fell on a Sunday. Locals said that the Founders had made a nodding agreement with the Almighty when the floats rolled out on that first day. They vowed to never hold it on a Sunday, and, for his part, God would never let it rain on the procession. Looking at the horizon and the line of rolling black clouds held at bay, Peter could almost believe it. He heard the bedroom door open, and his wife appeared a moment later. How's Henry? She inquired. Peter held the baby monitor in his hand up to her and, as if on cue, their son let out a comically loud snore. Shelby's face broke into a grin above her puffy eyes.
3: He's so cute.
5: She said adoringly.
3: Did you make tea?
5: Not yet, Peter replied. Shelby gave him a jokingly disapproving look.
3: Oh, you know the rules, Mr. Sandow. You wake up first, you make the tea. At least get the water started.
5: And I'm sorry, Dr. Sandow. I don't know what I could have been thinking.
3: <laughs> Useless.
5: She smiled and shuffled towards the kitchen to fulfill the task in question. Happy New Year, Peter called after her. Her head and shoulders appeared at the door.
0: <laughs>
5: she pressed her index finger to her lips and then withdrew her hand to point at Henry's door.
0: "'Happy New Year, honey,'
5: she replied with a smile. "'A small wail came from both the screen and Henry's room, "'announcing that their little boy was ready to join the rest of the world. "'I got him,' Peter said as he got up from the couch.
3: "'Yeah, you do,'
5: Shelby called from the kitchen. "'Silence no longer a concern.' "'They got Henry changed, fed, and dressed.' His tendency to sling formula around made it madness to try it in any other order. Shelby made waffles while Peter prepared mimosas for them to sip and marinated steaks that would later be placed on the grill. Periodically, they would check in on the parade's progress, marching bands and well-groomed horses weaving their way down Colorado Boulevard between the floats. they had yet to go see the parade in person, at least not the one during the day. Anybody wanting a reasonably good live view either had to be part of the media coverage or sleep out on the sidewalk the night before. After the parade was over, though, the floats would park at a local high school parking lot. Folks would be charged admission for the chance to walk around and view all the care and craft that went into putting these wonders together. Peter and Shelby had discussed taking Henry to see them when he was old enough to remember it, but that was still years away. After everyone got an eyeful of the blossom-strewn works of art, they'd be gathered up into a convoy. The greenery would be tied down with a skeleton crew doing various tasks to keep the floats together as they drove several miles to the stadium. There, they'd be taken apart, stripped of their finery, and rendered nothing more than bare wire frames. It was what Shelby called the nighttime show. The year they'd first arrived on Wrigley, they celebrated the new year much as they did this year. They cooked and watched the parade, doing a fair bit of day drinking while they observed. The days of carousing and imbibing like it was an occupation had passed them by. Peter suspected, now that Harry was with them, that there was a very good chance they'd soon stop staying up until midnight as well. The prior evening's festivities consisted of him watching a rerun of Family Guy while Shelby slept on the couch beside him. When he roused her to tell her it was midnight and marked the moment with a kiss, she muttered something and trundled off to bed without another clear word passing her lips. The year before had been so different. That evening a year ago, Shelby had stuck her head up against their great bay window and slightly wide-eyed, gestured for Peter to follow her outside. Most of the neighbors were already gathered outside, watching the floats pass by, slowly chugging along down the main road toward the stadium. Standing there, the two of them watched the gray shapes approach, their remaining glory revealed in the wavering pools cast by the streetlights overhead. It was a stripped-down, spontaneous encore of a performance, a great, secret show that only the locals knew about. Standing there in the chill of that evening, Peter occasionally looked at his neighbors, people that strangely did not generally interact with one another. But that night, each time he caught someone's eye, the two would smile at each other and nod in a companionable way. No one spoke, no one hollered. There was a kind of reverence to this. Dozens of floats passed by. Occasionally, the riders... Those maintaining these temporary vehicles for the last few miles would look up from their labors and wave. The group watched until the last in a convoy, a bizarre little scene depicting various prehistoric creatures crawling out of the La Brea pits, faded into the darkness. Shelby stood in front of him, allowing Peter to wrap his arms around her. Together, they silently bid goodnight to their neighbors as all retreated into their homes. That night, as they settled into bed, Peter felt sleepy, heavy in that delightful way sometimes felt before a wonderful night's rest. The day had been peaceful, the night almost magical. He slid over to his wife and buried his head in her hair, breathing deeply as he drifted off into sleep. After a time, he found himself, without explanation, no longer in his bedroom, or the formless nothing of sleep, but instead at the corner of Colorado Boulevard. Above him, the sky was clear and cloudless. He soon became aware that he was not alone on the street. Cardboard people of every age and hue had formed rough lines on both sides of the boulevard, they all wore the same vacant, rigid smile secured to their faces, and Peter could smell that they reeked of rotting flowers. As one, they turned their heads, their eyes wide with some indiscernible emotion. For a terrible moment, Peter was certain that they were staring at him. But following their gaze, his eyes fell on something on the distant horizon a speck along the curve of the earth, tiny as a drop of blood trickling its way down a pricked finger. He stood with the gathered crowd, unable to look away from that far-off thing. Soon he could feel its approach reverberating in his chest. He began to make the object out, identifying distinct individuals that comprised a column of people. He watched as each one, in perfect time with one another, would raise one leg and bring it down with a brutal crack against the asphalt, only to repeat the motion with the other leg a moment later. With each strike, Peter could make out more details. They wore uniforms, drab gray with brass ornaments flashing from the chest and shoulders. They made Peter think of military cadets... or a marching band... He soon saw that all of the figures carried an instrument of some kind, either in front of them or hoisted on their shoulders. Then he could hear the music they made. Or at least it was something like music. Cymbals crashed and drums banged out at odd arrhythmic intervals. Horns of every description blared shrill notes and horrendous counterpoint to the synchronicity of the band's marching feet. Every few feet one of the marchers would tear free from the crowd and post along the route, blocking the mass of humanity that had gathered to watch from coming any closer. Each onlooker wore the same static, idiot leer as those standing around Peter, but all of their eyes burned with an unnatural intensity that spoke only of simple hatred. After hundreds, maybe even thousands of them, passed by Peter... He saw a single float making progress down the street. A simple flat bed with wire frames rising from it, covered only in patches of wilted or rotting flowers. A small collection of people milled around those patches. Some were elderly, others looked to be in the prime of their lives, some held children in their arms. No one looked particularly happy or sad. Their eyes simply moved languidly from one side of the route to the next, showing no particular interest. They did not speak to each other. They didn't even seem aware of each other. Well, except for the two that rode at the front of the float. One was a young woman, dressed as though she'd just come from the gym, likely a senior in high school or a college freshman, There was something wrong with her, though. Her posture looked stooped, broken somehow. Her face was strained with the tremendous effort it must have taken for her to simply stand. Each jostle of the decaying platform brought a fresh expression of agony to her young face. Her hand rested on the shoulder of an elderly man seated in an old wooden chair. The touch seemed as much out of a need for support as any sign of affection it might have meant. The elderly gentleman vacantly scanned the crowd as he waved to them, but received no recognition except their ever-present toothy grins. From the man's position, Peter immediately guessed him to be the Grand Marshal of this procession. Periodically, the elderly man's eyes would roll to the back of his head, He wore an ornate crown that pulled with such a weight on him that his neck lulled to the side. Peter wasn't entirely sure, but it almost looked like it was made of thorns. The young woman tapped the marshal on his shoulder and pointed downward as they passed Peter. He watched the old man allow gravity to snap his head toward him, and, over the cacophony... Peter heard a voice as old as time say one word. Hello. And then he was awake. Peter sputtered around for a few moments as the dream slowly bled away from him. He calmed down and began taking in the world around him. In his own bedroom he became aware of the complete blurred stillness of his surroundings... There was a small, hitching noise that he couldn't first identify, as if it was coming to him through cotton. His surroundings refused to come into clear view. As he began blinking his eyes furiously, he found that they were filled with salty tears. Had he woken up crying? Shelby bolted up and over his stuttering breath asked Peter what was wrong. He had no words to describe it except that he'd had a nightmare. She cradled him and slowly ran her fingers over his brow until he drifted back to sleep. When he awoke again, he'd largely forgotten about the disturbing interlude. There were bills to pay, birthdays to remember. Days turned into months, and in February of that year, Shelby announced that their family was to grow by one. With the press of everyday life and impending fatherhood, there was no time to dwell on a single night of poor rest. That is until one night, while watching the news, Peter rubbing Shelby's shoulders, they came across the story of Cynthia Ann Ryder. The story itself was not remarkable. Most people will hear a version of it at least once a year or more. A local teenager on her way back from a party tries to run the spotlight, just enough alcohol buzzing through her system to never see the truck that had the green. According to the report, she told her parents she was meeting up with some friends after soccer practice. Miss Ryder's body was thrown from the vehicle. She expired at the scene. Both Shelby and Peter remarked on the event with the off-handed and directionless sympathy most have upon hearing such a story. The next day, however, while sitting at his desk, Peter thought about the girl and felt a need, a sharp and suddenly pressing need, to put a face to the name Cynthia Ann Ryder. Peter searched for her name and came across a few LinkedIn and Facebook profile results, people looking for new employment opportunities, and one young lady in Ohio that had won a county spelling bee the previous April. After a bit of sifting, he came across the Cynthia Ann he was looking for on one of the local news station's websites. He scanned the details about her from the article. Good student, taught soccer at a summer camp for underprivileged youth, a wonderful big sister to her nine-year-old brother. None of these or any of the other assorted details about her life set off any bells for Peter, but when he saw her photo, a tickle pressed at the back of his mind, something oddly familiar about the slope of her nose, the shape of her eyes. Where do I know her from? Peter wondered about the girl for the rest of the day. At meetings and in casual conversation, it gnawed at his every moment until he laid his head down that night. When his head touched the pillow, he smelled Shelby's shampoo and, for the first time since that day so early in the year, he remembered the parade. He put Cynthia's face to the shattered form of the girl riding the float in that nightmare landscape, and he recalled the old man, the Grand Marshal. He wanted to jolt upright, to do something about the whole ordeal. What was that going to be? He had no idea. But it was already too late. He felt himself slipping into sleep as though he were sliding irreversibly down a long tunnel. When he emerged on the other side, he was along the parade route again, and the float was drawing close. There was no sign of the young woman in her gym gear who would never see her first semester of college. Cynthia Ann Ryder had shuffled off this life. The parade had moved her along. Peter saw the others still riding with the marshal, their eyes drowsily scraping the crowd as they passed. There was someone else standing by the marshal now, a dark-skinned man with a severe militaristic manner. His face was smoothly shaven and placid, his eyes full of shrewd wariness, looking out at the crowd with the same intensity he'd leveled during staff meetings back in D.C. Peter could place that detail because, unlike Cynthia Ryder many nights before, he recognized this man. He had worked with him for the better part of five years, and while they hadn't been friends, they'd certainly liked each other enough to engage in polite conversation. Peter would ask about the man's family, and Clarence Wise would ask how Pete's gal was getting along. He looked just as Peter remembered him. That is until he turned his head. That simple motion gave Peter full view of his former co-worker's face. And the ghastly wounds that had destroyed most of it. The lower part of Wise's jaw had been pulped by some terrific force. Whatever it was had traveled up past his left eye and exploded out the top of his head, turning his cranium into some kind of gory, improvised funnel. This grotesque parody of his old friend stared at Peter, recognition lighting in his sole remaining eye. Peter saw Wise's mouth attempt to form some kind of word as he bent toward the marshal's ear. Hello, said the grand marshal. Somewhere within the infinite weariness of that voice, there was also a hint of familiarity. Peter was an old friend come to visit, someone that the marshal expected to see again. Upon waking and taking the time to gather himself, Peter started making calls back to every number he still had in his phone from the D.C. office. But, it being a Saturday, there was no answers until he tried Kenny Bryden's number. Hello, Bella Corp. this is Kenny Bryden. How may I help you? Kenny's Jersey accent clanged across the line. Hey, Kenny, it's uh, Peter Sandow. It had been two years, and though he'd been in the cubicle opposite Kenny for a long time, he had no expectations of being remembered. Petey! The boisterous voice proclaimed. Despite his 57 years, Kenny was full of bounding, aggressive optimism that could be both just what you needed to hear in the middle of the week and the most grating thing on a Monday morning. Is it you blowing up every phone in the office? You forget what day it is? (laughs) <laughs> uh, 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 no, I—I uh, was—I was hoping to catch anyone. Really, I'm trying to get a hold of Clarence Wise. Had a question I—I I thought he could answer. Kenny sighed deeply. <sighs> it's um—it's not likely. Peter felt cold. Rumor is, yesterday Clarence got up early and made breakfast for his kids. He told his wife he was headed out to the garage for get something out of his car, something like that. After an hour or so, she went looking for him. He could already picture Clarence walking down the perfectly shoveled path from his house, his head hung low, moving with the same purposeful stride he always had. She found him in the note he'd written, apologizing for the... Apologizing for the mess. Kenny shuffled the papers on his desk loudly enough for Peter to hear them in California. What? Well, did it say why? Peter did not want to ask how. He was certain he already knew. Don't know, but I doubt it. He wasn't the type to complain. An edge of admiration was present in Kenny's voice. Peter struggled through a few more minutes of question and answer with Kenny, but in the end none of it lodged too deeply in his memory. Clarence Wise was dead, by his own hand, and he had known in advance. It would follow that pattern again and again. A relative he hadn't seen in years had died of a heart attack while jogging, A drunk had killed a neighbor's child because they just refused to take a cab home. On the evening news, a family of four died in an avalanche in Colorado. Peter saw every last one in turn take his or her place alongside the Grand Marshal. There was never enough time to do anything about it, though. No appointed time was ever given. No address. No set of instructions that led him to being at the right place at the right time. He was simply the nightly witness to the parade and its passengers. There were times in the early morning hours, tears burning his eyes for the umpteenth time, that he considered joining Clarence. But there were still bills to pay... He had a job with the increasing responsibilities that came with climbing the corporate ladder... ...and he was trying to balance all of it with a new child in the house... ...trying to find any gaps in the baby-proofing measures he and Shelby had taken. So his nights, filled with unease and terror... ...slowly became just another fact of his life. Somehow he managed the day-to-day miracle of... ...not simply cracking from the strain... At the start of October, his branch manager, Mr. Rivers, called him to the fourth floor, home to senior management, to discuss a project that he'd been working on for the company. The lower floors were all open-concept space, cubicles with dividers so low that you could see all your co-workers at once, facilitating collaboration, said the administration. When the elevator door slid open, Peter noted that the managers had more traditional offices, granting them such luxuries as walls and doors. Peter knocked upon arriving at Rivers' door. Mr. Rivers invited him in as he sat comfortable behind his overly large and imposing desk. He was a neatly attired man of some indeterminate middle age, wearing a double-breasted suit that was a few years out of style. His double chin and earnest attempt at a comb-over did not detract from his air of authority. Another man with a full head of stark white hair sat in front of Rivers but made no move to turn around as Peter approached. Ah, Peter. Please have a seat. Rivers rose slightly and gestured at the chair next to the white-haired man. Do you know Tom Bedford? Peter had heard the name and had seen pictures on the company's website. Mr. Bedford, the director of West Coast Development. Mr. Bedford presenting to the shareholders. Mr. Bedford meeting with regulatory officials in D.C. Mr. Bedford biking down the 101 on a charity ride he organized every year. Sponsored by Bellator, of course. I don't believe we've met before. The man in his casual polo shirt exuded a virility that Peter never believed he could achieve in his own lifetime. Bedford stood and, smiling, offered Peter his hand. Hello, Tom Bedford, and I've been hearing some great things. The rest of his greeting was difficult to hear as the blood pounded in Peter's ears. Hello, hello. Hello, The word he'd said to Peter almost every night that year. Every night as he wore that awful crown on his head, his grimacing face turned towards the sky, his eyes flashing white as if in mid-seizure. Hello. Standing before Peter in Mr. Rivers' office was Tom Bedford, head of West Coast Development for Bellator Corp. Standing before Peter in Mr. Rivers' office was the Grand Marshal of the Parade. The meeting carried on for a while. Peter responded to their questions, offered projections for completion. At the end of their time, seeming pleased with the results, Bedford excused himself as he had to run to another appointment. He thanked Peter for his time. As an afterthought, he told Peter that he was certain they'd meet again. Peter... Successfully fought back the urge to shriek in the man's face. It was Friday, after all, and near enough five o'clock to go home. He stayed up late that night, desperate to avoid sleep, but after a number of beers meant to fight the rising panic, his eyelids announced their resignation to their fate and slid over his eyes as he sat on the couch. He was once again on the corner of Colorado Boulevard on a clear and cloudless day. The crowd gathered, the band struck up the music, and the parade's column moved down its appointed path. At last the float, the one he'd seen so many times, drew near, and Peter saw that Tom Bedford alone rode atop it. Without the weight of the others to balance it, the float bucked and rattled like a rickshaw, only emphasizing the horrible gesticulations of Bedford's form. It groaned to a halt in front of Peter. The music stopped. The marchers were gone. The murmur of the crowd had ceased. Peter looked around him and was alone with the marshal and the route. Peter, in absolute certainty... ...had only one thought. It's me now. It's my turn. He thought about Shelby finding his corpse on the couch in the morning. He thought about her raising Henry alone. He wept. And he kept weeping... ...until he heard the marshal's voice croak out a single word. Goodbye. And with that, Peter was awake on his couch... "'feeling the edge of a nasty hangover approaching. "'Upon opening his work computer the following Monday, "'he saw a new email in his inbox with the subject line, "'A loss in the Bellator family. "'It is with sadness that we must inform you "'that last Sunday Tom Bedford suffered a dreadful crash on his bicycle. "'Though all efforts were made, "'his injuries were too severe for him to recover.' The rumor around the office was that it had first seemed an insignificant accident. Another rider had drifted too close to Bedford, and in his attempts to avoid the crash, he had fallen headfirst off the trail into some brambles. The jovial man had laughed off the scratches from the thorns, simply taking some aspirin to combat the ache in his head. After arriving home, he'd drawn up a chair at his kitchen table and told his wife that whatever she was cooking for dinner smelled great. Mrs. Bedford was confused as it was ten o'clock and nothing was in the oven. A moment later, Tom Bedford, a man in phenomenal shape for his mid-fifties, fell off the chair and began writhing on his kitchen floor. In the weeks and months that followed, Peter did not dream... Not of the parade, not of anything at all. He was grateful for the simplicity of shutting his eyes and finding nothing waiting to greet him. The whole thing receded and seemed more of a fevered notion he once had than a memory of real events. Halloween came and went, Thanksgiving followed, then Christmas, and before he knew it New Year's Day was almost upon them. Now... As they sat and watched and clapped along with Henry and everything that tickled his fancy, Peter felt happier than he had in a long time. They watched everything together, from the riders on their majestic horses to the marching bands to the floats themselves. At one point, Shelby leaned over to her husband when Henry seemed so excited that he might burst at any minute. She whispered that she couldn't wait to see what Henry thought of the nighttime show. As the evening came, they gathered with their neighbors as they had the year before, and watched as the wondrous fabrications were transported past their street and out into the night. Peter stood next to Shelby with Henry in his arms, listening to every delighted, Ooh, that came out of his son. And, for the first time since his last dream wondered if he might see the parade one more time that night. That night, with Henry tucked safely in his crib, Peter lay next to Shelby with his eyes fixed on the darkened ceiling above him. Again, he did not want to sleep, fearing that this period had been a lull, the eye of some storm that had been waiting to toss him back into the water again. He fretted and turned for hours as Shelby snored heavily next to him. But in the early hours of that January morning, his head heavy with fog and half-formed plans, he eventually drifted off. The crowd welcomed him back as one of their own, and the band nodded their recognition as they passed. Peter stood impassively, "'letting the event wash over him as the float rattled into view. "'On it, he saw the fresh gaggle of the young and old, "'the healthy and the sick, the deserving and the tragic. "'One by one they would announce themselves to him "'and then go on their final way, for some reason, for no reason. "'Peter supposed it didn't matter.' With a muted interest, he saw that someone knew, a woman, sat in the chair at the front of the float. It made sense, of course. Bedford was gone. He had given up his place of honor and joined the rest in whatever place they went to over the horizon when their time had come. Peter leaned forward and could see that the once beautiful woman's sun-kissed skin and brown eyes were now ravaged by disease, a condition of which she was not yet even aware. She probably wouldn't know for another year about that thing slowly turning her into a poor imitation of the vibrant being she'd once been. In the waking world, his fists balled up by his sides, and he began driving them into the mattress repeatedly. A tiny voice that was more like his son's than his own, wailing, No! No! Peter knew her long before she passed by him. He remembered meeting her on a random event two thousand miles away from where they lived now. He knew her long before she waved... He could almost smell the hospital room where they'd held their son together for the first time. He knew her long before she said, Hello. As he watched Shelby pull away from him for the first time that year, Peter knew what Mrs. Bedford must have felt after the paramedics came for her husband. He knew what Clarence Wise's wife had felt when she saw what depression had done to her one and only. He knew what Cynthia Ryder's family had felt the morning after the accident. He knew what Henry would feel as he grew and the slivered memories of his mother would slip away from him. Peter felt alone in the parade carried on into the night.
2: There are so many people who find parades dull and can't wait for them to be over. There is certainly a reason to hope for the end of this parade. Before you know it, you may be taking part in this March of the Dead. After this final message, we will prick your ears with some exciting news from the world of the Simply Scary Podcast. Get ready for the experience of a lifetime. To see your favorite stories and some new nightmares in bloody color... Our Kickstarter to fund the Chilling Tales for Dark Knights animated series begins February 15th. Subscribe or become a patron to get updates on the latest news and to keep up with our goals. Plus, you'll get details of our giveaways that will be available for those who contribute. So get in on the action and bring a new form of horror to life. <laughs> So, the time for us to part has arrived. But before we leave you thoroughly chewed to the bone, let us remind you of what is upcoming in the world of the Simply Scary Podcast. First, it is extremely important that if you cannot or will not support us monetarily, we insist that you allow the ads to play through in our videos and occasionally click on them to assert your viewership. This is a way for you to lend your support without opening your wallet. You can get access to even more Simply Scary by becoming a patron today. You will have access to an extended broadcast of this episode, including more stories and more scary, plus other never-before-released experiences you will find nowhere else. Take the tour by going to simplyscarypodcast.com and click the Patrons button at the top of the page. Don't forget that starting February 15th, 2017, we begin our Kickstarter campaign to create a brand new, one-of-a-kind animated horror series based on our work. Click subscribe below or sign up as a patron to keep updated on the start and progress of this fully fan funded experience, and to find out more about the amazing rewards we have in store for you if you help support this outrageous endeavor. And finally, we are excited to choose our first YouTube comment giveaway winner Zero Corpse Boomer. Zero Corps Boomer writes, referring to our season 2 premiere episode. Another amazing installment! I find myself keeping my cable off and my YouTube running because it's channels like yours that are the future of entertainment. Keep up the fear inducing episodes. It's galvanizing like bad medicine. <laughs> Thank you for listening and commenting, Zero Corps Boomer. We need you to email us a screenshot of that YouTube account with your username pictured to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com. And we are hoping that you too turn off the cable and turn on the dark. Keep sharing us with everyone you know. This is GM Danielson thanking you for joining us. Until next time, listeners, when that little voice in your head is telling you yes, perhaps it would be better to listen to the screaming voice of your victim telling you... Good grief, I wonder if that was one of the interns. But keep checking those bumps in the night and making sure your door is securely locked. For you are just experiencing the Simply Scary Podcast.
1: This is executive producer Jesse Cornett like what you hear be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com there you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast the simply scary podcast is a production of chilling entertainment the showcase is written by jesse cornett and dustin koski and produced by jesse cornett the host of the simply scary podcast is gm danielson original music during the show by jesse cornett This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions, email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the Patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment, LLC 2017. Thanks for listening.